Race matters. 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 continue, I'd uh, like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land we are broadcasting from, as we have the privilege to do every single week. The Gadigal people have been here for over 60,000 years before us and will be here long after us. I pay my respects to elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge and honour the significance of Redfern. It's a place of strength, resistance, knowledge, sharing and storytelling for many communities and the birthplace of black theatre in this country. This is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. You're tuned into Race Matters on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Darren Lasagas. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I am super excited for today's show. In a moment, we're going to be joined by Benjamin Law, critically acclaimed Chinese-Australian writer and broadcaster who penned The Family Law and Geisha, uh, which, among other things he's written, speak clearly and vibrantly to the experiences of being queer and of migrant descent in Australia. Recently, he put out a two-part documentary series called What's in the Dragon, which uh, follows Benjamin and his parents on journeys through their Chinese-Australian ancestral past. I uh, watched them both over the weekend, both parts, and while I learned a lot, I also uh, cried a lot. It is uh, super affecting viewing, and we're going to talk about that as well as a new anthology he's edited. Darren Lasagas, and we're joined by Chinese-Australian writer and broadcaster Benjamin Law. You'd be familiar with his writing in uh, The Family Law and Geisha, among other works, and more recently a documentary on ABC called Waltzing the Dragon, which uh, uncovers his family's ancestral past, both in Australia and in China. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us. G'day, Darren. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Firstly, congratulations on uh, Waltzing the Dragon. Uh, I just think it's so incredible... Uh, that these stories were broadcast on primetime television. I know. That, like, the Australian public has time for 200-plus years of Chinese-Australian right. history. So, I mean, Waltzing the Dragon was told in two parts. One's a road trip with my mum, one's with my dad. And on surface, like, you might almost think that it's kind of like boutique niche television, right? But when we screened them, like, not only did they rate suspiciously well for, you know, what is essentially a two-part historical documentary. Um, but ever since, you know, the kind of traction that it's gotten uh, in terms of people telling each other, like, you've got to see this, you've got to see this. I was recently in um, Mudgee for the Readers Festival and it seemed like everyone at the festival had seen it. And I'm like, wait, like, what's your interest? You know, yeah, like, yeah. They, they didn't have a migrant background. But what I think it showed and reflected was that, Australians intuitively know that there are a lot of missing parts of our history that aren't shared widely. Um, and this documentary uh, kind of showed that so many parts of Australia, whether you're in Arnhem Land, regional New South Wales, regional Queensland, the top end, whatever, um, have a huge history of Chinese presence. Mm. I, I want to talk about that right now, actually. There are stories, as you say, that 
uh, might not be entirely familiar to a mainstream Australian audience. You cover a lot of ground uh, in the two parts, intergenerational Chinese relationships, uh, the legacy of uh, recent government policy. Yeah, white Australia policy. White Australia policy. But yeah, one of the main takeaways for me anyway, and what might uh, surprise a lot of viewers, is the history of Chinese, Australian and Indigenous relationships. You went to Arnhem Land and met with Bawaka, uh, traditional owner, Darabarawanga, and it's revealed that there are relations between the Chinese and Indigenous that predates uh, white colonisation. And I want to play a little excerpt of your conversation with him. Were McCassins the only kind of fishermen who were visiting here? No, there was a Chinese um, came here. Really? Chinese people? Yeah. Harvesting uh, tripangs too. They were getting sea cucumbers course, as well? Of course, yeah. What did the Yolngu want from the Chinese people? Well, same, like with knives, rice. They told us how to cook foods and, you know, things like that. Right. Yeah. So not just food, but cooking techniques were introduced? Yeah. Huh. I also notice you're holding those two sticks like chopsticks. Is that a Chinese influence? Yeah. <laughs> Is it really? True. We still use it here. Wow. It's funny that I was in Sydney and I saw people using it. I thought, how come they know? They know the same thing. Is it really a Chinese influence? It can be traced back? Yeah. Wow. I think that's so great. Did you uh, have any sense that this was the reality of our Australian history before meeting with Jawa Barawanga? Well, I wasn't taught this stuff in high school, but mm. then later as an adult, I did know about the Macassan trade. So there was a trade between Indonesian Macassans with Yongu people in the top end, and they were trading sea cucumber, which is a delicacy in a lot of Asian cuisines, but especially Chinese cuisine. The Chinese just really love their sea cucumber. <laughs> so even before white arrival, we do know that the Chinese had activated essentially Australia's first known ongoing taste of globalisation. It was definitely not the first fleet, but through Asian entrepreneurs driven by a Chinese market. And then beyond that, as we were talking to Jao Barawanga, um, I was just, you know, you just hear that moment there. It was this golden bit of television where we're having an, this conversation and recapping that Macassan Yonggu trade. And as he's just cooking me fish and picking the flesh off it over the hot coals, I'm like, dude, are you using chopsticks? <laughs> and wait a minute, like, is that something that you learned later in life? Because, you know, so many Australians use chopsticks nowadays. And he's like, no, like, you, you heard it. There was, there was this Chinese influence there. Now, um, there's, there's definitely an archaeological record that shows that the Macassans were definitely there for a very long time before white arrival. The Chinese presence, he says, was coming around the same time. There's nothing in the archaeological record that supports it, but there is a strong oral history mm. of Chinese people coming with Macassans um, and sharing all of, those, all of that knowledge and, and food and techniques with, with Yongu people. Extrapolating to uh, more recent years, 2019, let's say that, I feel like as migrants, uh, we are constantly trying to validate our Australianness mm-hmm. to ourselves and especially to others who may denounce it for whatever reason. What was it like hearing about this connection for the first time? It's like, really? Yeah. No, I mean, of course, we kind of have this rough idea of Australian history, which is at least 65,000 years of First Nations history, the oldest surviving and thriving civilizations this planet's ever seen. You know, Aboriginal people were baking bread before the Egyptians. Um, and then, you know, we're like, and then white people came, and then the Chinese people came during the gold rush, and then the Greeks and Italians, Vietnamese, and so forth. And that's kind of roughly correct correct, but it's such a blunt understanding. Mm. And when you lean into all of the caveats, the caveats themselves are these fascinating 
pocket and significant chapters of Australian history, like what is our first global trade? It's through Asia. Um, and so we really wanted to kind of flip the script in a way. And what I find fascinating is we've reached this stage, like say 2019, and as much as there is still this ongoing anxiety and tension about who does or doesn't apparently belong in Australia, which is all a little bit of just hangovers of mm. 200 years plus of racism, um, What's also happening, I've noticed, is that there is a genuine mainstream hunger for knowledge, like knowledge that seems to have been denied to us or erased or dismissed. It's why you see Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu still in the bestsellers five years after its release, because people are like, did you know this? I know I've been that person, like throwing that book in everyone's Mm -hmm. face. Um, It's why that, that book will become a TV show. It's why Watching the Dragon has become... Success. People do want to know whether they're Chinese Australian or not. Mm. By the same token, uh, there are government policies which Chinese Australians have directly benefited from. You explore the Colombo Plan, uh-huh. which uh, encouraged Chinese students to study in Australia, which effectively uh, contribute to the displacement of Indigenous people. Yeah. So obviously, Australia's relationship with its own Indigenous peoples is so fraught. Yeah. Um, whether you're a migrant or not, um, and you need to and you need to kind of understand that you know if you're from a migrant background, you have probably faced racism in your time in this country but at the same time you're part of this ongoing racist project which is this idea of Australia Mm. Um, you know as much as we're migrants um, we might not say well we weren't the first colonialists but you know as my Aboriginal mates tell tell me it's like you're a settler too Uh, and they're absolutely right so you have to that doesn't cancel out other things it's an add-on it's kind of like We've been here, um, Asian Australians and specifically Chinese Australians especially have been subjected to racist policies, but we are also in our own way contributing to it um, and those two things don't cancel each other out. Mm. Benjamin, I want to talk about your mum for a moment. Let's do uh, that. Jenny comes across uh, so clearly a very special person, <laughs> uh, not only to you, but to everyone uh, who comes into contact with her in the documentary alone is enthralled by her for whatever reason. She's amazing. She's a character. Uh, early in part one, uh, in conversation with you, she made this comment uh And it was, if I didn't know how to speak English, then you would not be born. Mm. Um, Which really distills the migrant parent experience kind of brutally, but also beautifully. Um, And it speaks to a unique kind of debt uh, that we owe to our parents. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about what kind of debt our kids will owe us. (laughs) Everything. Do you you think there will be a debt? Um, I think there's always a debt that is owed to your parents. But when you come from a migrant background, and especially if, say, you were either born here or you came over here when you were quite young and your parents came over here and they weren't born in this country, they're they're the kind of first generation that debt that all of us owe to our parents is completely amplified because not only are they giving up all the things that parents give up uh, to to raise children, they're also giving up culture, community, language, and most importantly, food. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all those things that mum couldn't find in her early years of moving to Australia, but instead she got cheese and yogurt for the first time. And she's <laughs> like, what is this horror in my mouth? She loves both of those things now, but um, that's, that's a huge thing. And when you say, um, when you bring up correctly, like mum saying, you know, your dad kind of married me because I could speak English. Dad can speak English as well, but mum was really, really fluent. Um, and that's kind of a reminder of 
the not only romantic transactions that were happening in marriage for so many people of that generation, but the economic ones mm. too. That it's just like, well, this makes romantic and business sense. Let's, let's do, do it. it. Yeah. And let's move to Australia, a country where, at least for my mum, I've never been before. <laughs> Huge gamble. And, um, you know, I'm the beneficiary of, of those risks, as so many um, Australians are. You are listening to Race Matters right now. I'm Darren Lasagas. We have Benjamin Law in the studio with us talking his new documentary, Waltzing the Dragon. I want to talk a bit more about our mothers after this <laughs> uh, from Lizzo, which needs a language warning. This is Juice on Race Matters. On Race Matters, I'm Darren Lasagas. We have Benjamin Law in the studio with us. We're talking Waltzing the Dragon, a new documentary uncovering the histories of uh, Chinese Australians as told through the journeys of Benjamin himself and his parents. It's streaming right now on ABC iView. And uh, a little later on, we're going to talk about uh, a new anthology Benjamin's edited called Growing Up Queer in Australia. But before we do, uh, Benjamin, I feel uh, kind of like a real internal connection to the work that you do uh, in that I'm a child of migrants uh -huh. myself. Uh, I speak minimal of my parents' uh, native tongue. And uh -huh. uh, uh, I mean... Do you understand? You, do you I understand definitely understand it. it. Uh -huh. uh, I know what my parents are talking about me and that's probably the most important part. <laughs> of course. Um, it's like, I don't care what you're saying as yeah, long as you're talking about me. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, in a way, I have a disconnect uh, with my ancestral home in the Philippines. Yeah. And I think part of what puts me off uh, starting conversations uh, with my parents of returning uh, to the Philippines to connect with my family and to connect with country is a bit of embarrassment that mm. I um, haven't done so already and that I'll go there and my grandma will see me as a non-Tagalog speaking foreigner, yeah. uh, which obviously is like a personal misgiving that I, um, I have to work through myself. But for those listening who may be thinking about having to start those conversations with their parents, where do they start? I think where you want to, which is with the obvious questions. Um, one of the things I think is quite interesting when you kind of go back through your own story is you kind of think you know your own story, but try writing it down and you realise there are a lot of gaps. There are some basic things that you don't understand and coming from a writing and journalism background, it's been nice because part of my work has involved my family. So I get to sit down with them almost as a journalist and say, okay, I've got some questions for you and this is my work, so you have to yield and acquiesce. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't understand like why was your father going to 
San Francisco? Why did he leave you and your mum behind? All those kind of gaps that you need filled. Um, like start up with an agenda, become a little bit like a journalist with with a list of what you want to understand and get through. What was interesting is um, us also discovering that, you know, as much as people from like, say, Euro or Anglo backgrounds can log on to, you know, a genealogy website and do that, for a lot of us who come from like, say, Asian um, backgrounds or backgrounds that don't have an English-speaking um, component, we might find that a bit more difficult Totally. Um, if you come from a Chinese background, for instance, it's not just a language barrier, but there's also um, like a record barrier. There's something called the Cultural Re Revolution that happened <laughs> that destroyed a lot of records. Mm. So that's also um, a hindrance too. But more and more, there are like really interesting organisations and community groups online that can help you do that stuff and to, you know get started. Mm. So one of the things is like you might want to talk to your folks, but of course your folks might not want to talk. Yeah, exactly. In which case, go to your local state library because you'd be surprised at how resourced they are with this kind of stuff nowadays. For me, uh, another barrier to forging that connection is uh, a bit of apprehension of how uh, more extended relatives will receive me as being gay. Mm -hmm. uh, something about being queer uh, is that in a lot of ways, you never stop coming yeah, out, which exactly. uh, I know you have written about a lot in the past. I think um, I came out to my taxi driver last week. Yeah, coming out to uh, hotel concierges when they book you and yeah. your partner with like two beds, that Absolutely. kind of thing. And, and to be honest, even though I you know, often say that I came out at the age of 17 and I came out to my mum my dad, my siblings around that age. Um, it wasn't until I was double that age that I came out to my grandmother because mm. my Cantonese is pretty botched. She doesn't speak any English. And beyond the language barrier, there is also a cultural barrier as well. Like when would we talk to our grandparents about relationships and sexuality anyway? anyway. So I ended up having to probably, she probably would have heard this kind of botched Borat coming out where it's like, <laughs> Grandmama, me no, I don't like the woman. I like man very much. You know, like it, it was, it was awkward and, mm. but, but, but it was necessary too. Uh, speaking of growing up queer in Australia, I can't let you go without mentioning <laughs> a uh, new anthology you've edited coincidentally uh, titled yes, named just growing that, up queer in australia growing up queer in australia which uh i wish existed in some way when i was 13 years old yeah, but so i guess I. it exists now for 13 year olds yes um who are some of the writers included uh in the anthology we've got some really great writers that people might be familiar with already uh people like nayuka gori david ma holly throsby um you know there are some big kind of banner ticket names there rebecca <laughs> shaw uh that people will recognize and and adore already and they've been paired up alongside um, Q&As with also other prominent people like William Young and Christos Cholkis and Sally Rugg and Kate McCartney and Georgie Stone um, and then we, the rest of the contributions are really harvested from across the country, across generations and across cultures, backgrounds and abilities because I think it's obvious but you know, growing up queer in the 1950s is not the same as growing up queer now. Growing up queer in the Australian regions isn't the same as growing up in the Australian cities. And all of those things that inform our backgrounds make for a different coming out experience. So we've really, um, what one thing I really wanted to do was ensure that LGBTIQA plus was 
all represented properly, robustly, not tokenistically. Um, and the other thing was making sure that we really lent into the complications. You know, like so often a coming out story is, and then I came out and then I was free. But we've got a Vietnamese-Australian writer, Vivian Pham, who talks about coming out to her mum three times and on, on the third time her mother said, if you do that again, I'll take my own life. And she's decided that she will never, ever talk to her mother about her sexuality again. Uh, so we want, wanted to lean into the complications as well as, you know, sometimes the unintentional humour and hilariousness and joys um, and sadnesses and wounds that come with, with this whole queer experience. Incredible. Uh, Benjamin, we are coming to the end of the show, but before I do let you go, there is a question that we ask every guest uh -huh. and uh, the discussion pretty much naturally leads there anyway. Uh, Benjamin Law, when did you realise there was power in your race? Um, you know, funnily enough, people say, were you excluded from the media because of your race? And in some ways it's been an advantage because one of the things that you need in media and the arts is a different perspective and being a minority already gives you that. You see the world through a different lens, run with it. It'll be, it'll be valuable. Benjamin Law, thank you so much for coming in for Race Matters. Thanks, Darren. Uh, Waltzing the Dragon is streaming online right now and Growing Up Queer in Australia is out everywhere. Is that correct? It's correct. Out everywhere. Every bookshop, online. Amazing. Here's Rainbow Chan and Oblivion.
Race matters. 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 Race matters.